Abel, Joseph, Moses, Abimelech, Samson, David, Elah. Well, these are just some of the many people in the Bible who have suffered betrayal at the hands of others. And as we think of these people, we, when we think of those just few names I threw out there, we immediately realize that some of them not only suffered betrayal, but were also the betrayers of others. We think, for example, Abimelech, who we looked at in the book of Judges. He was betrayed by the people of Shechem. We remember that, didn't he? That's how he was betrayed. But only after he had already betrayed his brothers, murdered all of them on a stone. He killed the, his brothers, uh, the children of Gideon, in cold blood. Then we think of David. Uh, David was betrayed by his son Absalom and his advisor Ahithophel. But also we remember that David also betrayed Uriah, the Hittite, whom he murdered in cold blood. So as we think about this issue of betrayal and what this Bible records about these characters, we immediately reminded here that the Bible really says for us the issue of betrayal as a fundamental reality of life. All of us suffer betrayal in varying degrees. We are betrayed by people. People treat us less, if you like, than, than we expect them to treat us. And yet at the same time, we also betray the trust of others. We are the betrayed and the betrayers at the same time. And so immediately we have to ask the question, don't we? Why are we like this? Why do we behave like this? Why do we live in such a world where we are the betrayed and the betrayer? And the Bible's answer, really, in fact, the Bible is a story of betrayal, really. And because the beginning in Genesis, there we have actually the answer to that question. The reason we are the betrayed and the betrayer is that this is a legacy of the great betrayal of God in the Garden of Eden, where our ancestors, Adam and Eve, betrayed God. God lavished on us his love, his goodness, but we decided to betray his trust and we listened to the lies of Satan. We wanted to become like God, despite all that God had given us. We betrayed him. And since our ancestors, Adam and Eve, betrayed God, we, we now live under the power of sin. We now live betrayed and betraying one another. And as I said, the person we betray most clearly is God. We see that even in the life of Israel. We see how they are betraying God throughout. The sin is betrayal of God, as we shall see in a moment. But the person we betray most in our lives is God. And the problem with that is that God is not Joe Bloggs. Right? He is our loving creator who deserves our highest love, adoration, and worship. Not our betrayal. So my goal this evening is to encourage all of us to give this amazing, wonderful God who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus, to give him the true, heartfelt worship he deserves. I want to encourage us to be people that worship God rather than betray him. Rather than treating him as a doormat in our lives. And to help us do this, uh, please uh, look with me there at Mark 14, verse 12 to 21. We are working our way through Mark. 
and Jesus and the disciples are about to have a Passover meal. Uh, it's the month of Nisan, which will be around about April, and it's the Passover is approaching. And Jesus and the disciples want to have a nice meal, and uh, when we have a description of, of them coming to prepare this meal in this passage. There are just two things we learn in this passage. We learn more, but just two things I just want to draw your attention to. Uh, that this passage teaches us about this whole issue of betrayal. The first lesson we learn in this passage uh, is that Jesus is God betrayed for us. Jesus is God betrayed by us, I should say. I already jumped my second point. The first point is Jesus is God betrayed by us. Jesus is God betrayed by us. Let's read the text. Jesus and his followers here are in the town of Bethany. Uh, this is where, we've been, where Jesus has been spending nights before going to Jerusalem during the day. But it is now Thursday. This is the final week of the life of Jesus before he's crucified. It is a Thursday. Tomorrow it will be Good Friday. And it will be the day that Jews in Judea will officially begin to celebrate the Passover meal. But Jesus and his disciples are following the tradition begun by the diaspora community. They are planning to celebrate their feast Thursday evening. And Matt tells us that the disciples have come to Jesus to ask for his thoughts on where they should go for a meal. Let's read verse 12. And on the first day of the unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? They want to know where should we go for a meal. And Jesus gives the orders, doesn't he, in verse 13 to 15. Let's read on. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there prepared for us. Now Luke tells us here that the two disciples Jesus has dispatched to go to Jerusalem is Peter and John. And we can imagine as Peter and John are on their way there, they're a bit puzzled about Jesus' instruction. And Jesus said they'll find a man carrying a jar. Right? But men in their culture, and where I come from, do not normally do this, go around carrying jars. This is the work, this is something that women do in the ancient Near East, not men. So that's a bit puzzling. And Jesus said the owner will give them a spare room. Now, Jerusalem is packed at this moment. The size has quadrupled because people have come in from all over the place for the pilgrimage. So they must be wondering, look, you know, this is not Wuhan or, or Milan, you know, during the coronavirus. This is Jerusalem, heavily packed. Where are we going to find space to go? But as Peter and John arrive at the place in Jerusalem where Jesus has sent them, they find things as exactly as our Lord Jesus has said. Let's read verse 16. And the disciples set out and went to the city, and here's the key, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, Mark, who spent three verses on the baptism of Jesus, 
2, I think, on his temptation, spends five verses to tell us Peter and John find the room to eat exactly as Jesus has said. Why is that? Well, the reason for that is that this passage, like the passage in Mark 11 about finding a donkey for Jesus to ride on, uh, is telling us that Jesus is God himself who has come to Jerusalem. Why? Because in this passage, Jesus, again, as he did with the donkey, is demonstrating knowledge that only God has. When we read in verse 16 that the disciples found it or discovered it, as he had told them, our reaction in our, as we're reading our, our Bibles at home or here is to, be, to, to, to marvel at the foreknowledge of Jesus. And marvel not only at the, phone, at the divine knowledge of Jesus, but also as, at, over the authority over our lives. Now, it's possible that the owner here would have been, may have been a follower of Jesus already. But the key point is that Jesus knows that this owner has this thing, and he, he, he requests it without expecting the person to refuse at all. Jesus, if you like, is, is interesting. He even says, where is my guest room? Not his, where is, not his, not, he's not saying, where is your room that we could borrow? He's just like, I need this. I want it, as he did with the donkey. Jesus is claiming not only divine foreknowledge, but he's claiming divine authority uh, over all of life. So the room has been secured and prepared. And soon Jesus and the rest of the disciples drop, drop in, ready to feast together. Let's read on verse 17 to 17 on. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. Now, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, we just pause there. They're, they're, he's coming with the twelve, and they are now eating. They are now eating the Passover meal. Now, we'll say more tomorrow, Sunday morning, uh, about the Passover meal, right? But for now, we just need to note that Mark does not say much about the meal itself. We pick it up around about the details, as we'll see next week, but it doesn't say much about the meal itself. It does not tell us all he knows, right? But it tells us all we need to know. And what he wants us to know is that as they are eating, Jesus calmly drops a bombshell. Look at verse 18. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now, when we hear this revelation from Jesus that one of them is going to betray him, we know that Judas has quietly been working to betray Jesus. We know that from verse 10 to verse 11. But no one around Jesus knows or even suspects. We know that because look how they react uh, in, uh, in verse 19. They were asking, look, is it I? So none of them expects to be Judas. They, they are shocked. We can imagine the shock on their faces. Uh, it's like one of those family meals, isn't it? Or family reunions when someone, you know, you, you are home, sitting at home, and somebody all of a sudden reveals a shocking secret uh, uh, of a child divide or something, something like that. Those things happen in families, isn't it? There's, oh, by the way, uh, there's a child somewhere. <laughs> Didn't you know? I, I just announced to everyone I have another child, right? <laughs> you see, <laughs> one of those Christmas meals which has just been spoiled. There's a shocking secret has been revealed, and everybody's shocked. Well, this is a shocking secret which is like, one of you guys, one of you guys is plotting to put me to death. 
You've been working with my enemy to put me to death. And as Jesus utters those words, you, uh, we can imagine it immediately sends all of them. In fact, we don't have to imagine it. Mark tells us it sends everyone in a tailspin. Let's read on verse 19. They began to be sorrowful and to say to one another, one after another, one after another, is it I? Uh, we can imagine the disciples, first of all, turning <laughs> to themselves and saying, is, 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 is it me? But more so turning to Jesus, isn't it? Asking him, are you sure? Do you really think it's going to be me? Why would I betray you? Right? But Jesus calmly repeats his, his statement with more emphasis. Let's read on verse 20. And he said to them, it is one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. All Jesus is saying here in Mark's account is simply that it is not someone distant who will get murdered. You know, meals were, were uh, meals in the ancient Near East. This is the height of friendship. Uh, you, you only bring to meal. When you're having a meal with somebody, you know, you're showing that you welcome them. Uh, they, they, they are your intimate friend. You love them and you care about them. And Jesus here is sitting with them, having this meal. And he's just simply making the point. It is not someone distance who will get me murdered. It is one of you here who I have embraced, who I have dearly loved. It is one of my own, one I'm eating with, one I'm, I'm spending time with Anandos, we might say. Somebody that I really click with. That's the, one of you guys, one of the twelve, will have me murdered soon. Now, it surprises us, isn't it, that Jesus ends there in verse 20. Or Mark's record ends there. Because we're wondering to ourselves, why is Jesus not named Judas? Or why is in Mark's account, Mark not even adding the name Judas? Because we know later on Jesus has something more to say about what's going on here. But why the mystery here at this stage? Why is he doing that? Well, because he wants us to see that this is not about Judas. It is not about Judas. Judas is not named because Judas represents all of them. And as we shall see in the future, all the disciples will desert Jesus. And they will be led by Peter. <laughs> by even, all of them will. Right? So it's not about Judas. The betrayal is already happening even among them, all of them. In different ways. And the other thing is, is that Judas does not just represent the 12, he represents all of us, doesn't he? Because the final words of Jesus doesn't, doesn't focus on Judas' name, it focuses on his humanity. Look at verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. By word to that man, that man, by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Pause there. The point our Lord Jesus wants us to see it is that it is, we might even say, for the Son of Man goes as it is written, but woe to that human being by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. The point Jesus wants us to see is that it is a human being who has betrayed the only perfect human being who has ever lived. God the Son has not been betrayed by angels or some other creatures he met. 
Jesus is God betrayed by that man, by man, by one of us human beings, by us. And this is the point, isn't it? Jesus is God betrayed by us, by humanity. Jesus is God who deserves our worship, and yet we see here in the actions of Judas, as he represents all of us, Jesus is being betrayed by human beings he created and loves. As I said, the sad truth is that we are Judas. Because all of us live betraying the God who created us and sustains us regardless of how much he loves and blesses us. Who is allowing you to breathe at this moment? It's God, isn't it? But is that truth going to stop you sinning? You know the areas of your life where you need to repent. Is that going to make you repent, really? That truth you've just heard, that God has given you all of himself. The breath of God is in you. He sustains you. Is that going to make you stop sinning? No. Why is that? Because the reason is that you are a natural born betrayer of God. It is your nature to use and abuse the goodness of God. To sell off God cheaply. You know, the Bible uses many images to describe our rebellion against God. So, for example, the Bible talks about rebellion against God as missing the target. That's the definition of sin. Sin is missing the target. You are aiming for something you missed. That's sin. That's how we miss the target because we don't treat God (laughs) the way he deserves. We miss it. We, We aim somewhere else. We misdirect our affection. That's what sin is. Sometimes the image it uses is violating the law. So sin is trespass. You transgress. What you're doing with transgressing is you're violating the law. That's one image of how we relate to God. We violate his law. We transgress the order and the law that God has set in place. The other image the Bible uses to describe our rebellion against God is that we twist things. Twisting. Things are meant to be used in one way, but we twist them and decide to use them in our own way. The, the, the Bible, the biblical word for that is iniquity. That's what iniquity is. Iniquity is twisting, changing what God has intended for one use and twisting it, or even defiling it. We could also talk about defiling is another image God uses, isn't it? To describe our rebellion against God is that God has created us in one way, but we defile our relationship with him, we defile ourselves. There are many images in the Bible. And uh, one of the things I've been doing in my spare time is just writing out the images of sin that we've been meeting actually in Mark. And there are many interesting images uh, which I haven't mentioned, which we've encountered in Mark. But one of the images of, of sin we've encountered, we're just encountering here, in this passage we are seeing that our rebellion against God uh, is treason or betrayal. Sin is breaking our friendship with God for our personal satisfaction. And all of us here are are great sinners before God. We do not just share in the betrayal of, of Jesus by Judas in the sense that we are human beings. We are Judases every day who deserve hell because every day we live for ourselves rather than for God. And you and I, I'm emphasizing this point that you understand that you and I cannot enter the kingdom of God without first coming to terms with this tragic truth. 
And the truth is, Jesus is God betrayed by us. We have betrayed Jesus by nature. And the first question we have to ask each one of us, I have to come to terms with is this. Do you recognize your face in the face of Judas? Do you accept that you are a betrayer of God? In fact, not as an intellectual point, but do you feel the weight of that? Does it wrap all of you? Do you sense how serious that is, that you have betrayed the God who made you? Well, if you do, then the second and final truth in this passage is for you. The second and final truth we see here is that Jesus is God betrayed for us. Jesus is, the first point is that Jesus is God betrayed by us. That's bad news. The good news is that Jesus is God betrayed for us, for us. Throughout this narrative, Mark does not want us to miss the key point here. Jesus is not some helpless victim of the betrayal by humanity. As we work our way towards the cross, as we're going to see him whipped, mocked, and everything, it's important that we understand, and finally nailed on the cross, it is important that we understand that Jesus is not a helpless victim. No, he's allowing himself to be betrayed by Judas. And we know this because Jesus has taught us already on his way to Jerusalem. He taught us that. Do you remember we looked at Mark 10? You might flick backwards. Mark 10, verse 33 to verse 34. Do you remember that? It's one of my favorite passages in Mark. Mark 10, verse 33 to 34. It says this. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve, he began to tell them what was going to hap- what was to happen to him, saying, "See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over, or he will be betrayed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him." And after three days, he will rise. How does Jesus know all of that stuff? Well, he knows all of us that stuff according to Mark, going back to Mark chapter 14, because he's read about it. Don't miss that. Look at verse 21. For the Son of Man goes, as what? As it is written of him. As it is written of him. The first reason why Jesus, how Jesus knows all of this is that he's read it. He's understood the scripture. In his humanity, he's been spending time with God. He's been opening the word of God. He's read it, and he's especially read Psalm 41. In Psalm 41, verse 9, he would have read this. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. He's read that, so he knows it's coming. But Jesus has not just read his Bible. That doesn't tell you that Judas is the one. He just tells you you're going to have a betrayer, right? So Jesus, though we are taught, has also been aware as God the Son that it is Judas who will betray him. How do we know that? Well, John 13, verse 10 to 11 tells us that. John 13, verse 10 to 11 says this. Jesus said to them, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. 
That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So Jesus knows. He knows. He's been aware of Judas's underlying false profession. And Jesus knows more than, not simply that Judas will betray him. Jesus knows that as a result of Judas's betrayal, he's going to die on the cross. He knows that his divine hands will be pierced with sharp, huge nails. He knows that the same hands of his that formed the universe and flung stars into space, those same hands that designed and crafted human beings, that crafted Judas, will be pierced with nails. We need to remember and take that in. We need to take this truth in. We need to remember that as we see Jesus sitting in the upper room, this is our creator awaiting his execution by the people he created. This is the king of the universe willingly choosing to be betrayed and killed by his citizens. This is the father allowing himself to be killed by his children. The person who is sitting there is God the Son who is willingly making his way to the cross so that God's wrath and the hatred of every sin you have ever committed would be poured on him. We need to understand that Jesus is being betrayed for us, for me, for you. And this is what salvation means. What is salvation? Salvation is God entering this world in Jesus to be betrayed by us and for us. And the question therefore for us is this. How should you and I respond to that earth-shaking truth that Jesus has been betrayed by us and for us? Well, first of all, if you're a follower of Jesus, let this willing betrayal of Jesus remind you of what a wonderful Savior you have in Jesus. This is how much your God, Jesus Christ, loves you. Jesus has willingly allowed himself to be betrayed for you so that he can die on that cross for your sin. He came on a mission to die for you. The the good news of Jesus is simple. It is this. You are a betrayer. And yes, you deserve eternal punishment for betraying God every day. Just like Judas. But God in Jesus has allowed himself to be betrayed all the way to the cross so that He may forgive your betrayal and make you his forever. If you are in Jesus, God has wiped away all your betrayal against him, past, present, and future. He no longer sees you as Judas. He sees you as his beloved son. Stephen Shannock says the love of Jesus opened his breast to receive into his own heart the sharp edge of the sword which was directed against us. In modern terms, we would say, Jesus, somebody was about to shoot you, and Jesus put his body in front so that he could take the bullet for you. Beloved, as you sit here this evening, have you stumbled in some sin lately in your life? Perhaps some bitterness, 
Perhaps a spirit of lack of forgiveness. Perhaps a sexual sin of some sort. Have you? Perhaps an addiction you can't control. As you sit here this evening, are you finding yourself falling all the time in some sin? Have you betrayed Jesus with your love of this world rather than surrendering all of yourself to him? Have you done a Judas on Jesus? As you sit here this evening, as you sat here, are, are you like these disciples filled with sorrow over your sin? Are you perhaps finding yourself you know, in a situation where you are beginning to doubt the love of Jesus for whatever reason because of things going on in your life? Are you sometimes feeling that the glass is half empty as it were? The answer to all of these questions is simple. Fix your eyes on Jesus betrayed for you. There is no betrayal that you ever commit that cannot be forgiven by the betrayal of Jesus. When he said it is finished, he meant it. All your betrayal of him, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. So come to Jesus afresh and thank him. That's the first response. Thank him for his grace. And bring all your doubts, all your fears before him. That's the first response. The second response here is that if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to realize that the betrayal of Jesus at the hands of sinners now forms the template or stencil, as I like to put it, of your life. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that just as Jesus experienced betrayal in his life, you too, if you are in union with Christ, you too who are his very own, you will experience hurt, betrayal, and pain at the hands of people around you for Jesus. Human beings are hypocrites. They can sit with us and share stories. And only a day later start saying nasty things about us. That is how people have. But even if people are not being hypocrites to us, we, we are people we love and care about who sometimes just deeply hurt us. For whatever reason, many people in your life will sell you out like Judas. And of course you know this already, so you don't need me to remind you of that. You've perhaps experienced some of you deep hurt in the past. The truth of the matter is that there is no adult in this room who has not suffered some form of betrayal. Even our young people have suffered that as well, the little ones. So the question is, how should you and I respond when we face betrayal or just deep hurt from people? I think the answer is obvious here, isn't it? Our attitude must be like the Lord Jesus in this passage. Surely. Jesus is loving and welcoming to Judas. Have you, can you see him there? He's serving the meal. He's the pre, in, in the Passover meal, Jesus is a presider. He's the, he's the one who's presiding over this. We'll explore that a bit more on Sunday. But he's the one who's actually serving the meal. He still calls Judas his friend, doesn't he? Because he's invited him in. He loves Judas deeply. Even though he knows Judas is scheming to betray him. So the question for you this evening is very simple. Has someone hurt you? And Jesus is saying, sit down with them at the table, if they will let you. 
Open your life to them as Jesus is opening his life to Judas. Let them know Jesus loves them deeply. Point them to the love of Jesus. And you must do that with honesty, right? Jesus is loving his betrayer in truth, isn't it? He's not hiding that Judas will betray him. He brings it up. Jesus is just swelled up. He's like, yeah, I love you. I've invited you. Great for you to be here, but I'm hurt by you. You, you are betraying me. So it's loving with truth. We're not saying loving people means you don't share the truth. Quite the opposite. Loving people means you got to share the truth with them. If you are going to love your betrayer, Jesus does, you must go to them with the truth. You must say, you must put the head on the table and you must let them face the truth. Not with tantrums, right? <laughs> but with loving calmness, isn't it? We see the calmness of our Lord Jesus here. He's just like calm, like, wow, how do you stay calm? This person is about to kill you in two days. He's about to contribute to your death in two days. But Jesus is lovingly calm. Listen, ignoring those who are virtuous is not the Jesus way. That is not love. When somebody is virtuous, we just ignore them. That's not love. Love confronts those we care about with the love of Jesus. Jesus, our God, did not ignore us, did he? When we betrayed him with our sin, he didn't stay in heaven and just ignore us, no. Jesus, our God, has come down to sit with us, his enemy. He has willingly opened his heart to us. And through the cross, he has laid down his life for us. And here with Judas, he's opening his heart to Judas. And you must do the same to others. Now, that this is not easy. But we must do it even if it costs us. Remember what we said this morning. True faith surrenders all of our life to Jesus. When we are facing hurt in our lives, let us ask God to give us the strength to put his interest above ours. Let us ask him to give us an obedient heart. Don't bottle things up. Don't keep them in. Be like the Lord Jesus. Put it on the table. That's love. Thirdly, so the first thing is we need to worship Jesus for what he's done. The second thing is we need to model what Christ is doing. Well, the third thing is, let this betrayal of Jesus by Judas fuel your heart to willingly lay down your life for Jesus. To live for him rather than Betraying Jesus every day. And perhaps this is the most crucial point for all of us here sat here this evening. You and I know that we are prone to betray Jesus. Just like Judas, as I was said. Judas betrayed Jesus because of the love of this world. Judas believed that money answers everything. Judas was a materialist. He would fit in in our society. He believed having things of this world was more important than Jesus. That's Judas. And we'll explore him deeper later in future sermons. He believed that money could make him more happy than Jesus. Beloved, and we all of us tempted to live like that. How often do we betray Jesus for worldly things, not just money? Oh, beloved, Jesus is your friend. He's your best friend if you trust in him. You know how often Jesus has dug you out. He has dug you out of so many holes you've been in your life. 
You know you have no better friend than Jesus. You are so often down in the dumps, he's there sharing with you. The fact that you are here is his grace. But look how often you, how, how badly you treat him. How so often you betray him. You are willing to do things that satisfies you alone. Even when you know those things you're doing are damaging your heart and your relationship with God in the long term. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that you betray his friendship when you go for periods of time without even getting on your knees to tell him how much you love him and care for him. What sort of friend is Jesus to us if we don't even want to spend time with him consistently? You know you are tempted to do things in the church that fits in with your other priorities in your life. You know, Jesus' priorities were to maximize his pocket. What is that? Jesus. You know, Judas was a utilitarian. It was all about maximizing his pocket. Friendship doesn't matter. We'll come to that in the future. It's all about the pocket. All of us are like that, aren't we? Not just the pocket. We try and do church. We try and do Jesus maximizing other things. You want to maximize your career prospects. So you, you want to be seen as a hard worker, even if it means that Jesus in this church takes a back seat. You want to maximize your TV and online activity, right? Your leisure time. You want to maximize the time you spend on your favorite couch in the house. So evening fellowship is out, right? It gets in the way, right? Isn't this the reason that many professing Christians work on the Lord's Day? It's okay to work on the Lord's Day. I don't have a problem with that. But is it not because for so many Christians, we are willing to sacrifice fellowship for money? Is this not the reason we struggle with midweek? Is this not the reason we do not find time to share Jesus with others? Why? We are too busy with us. I had to think about this question. Is this not the reason we are afraid to tell our neighbors or our colleagues that Jesus loves them? Why? Because we care more about what they think than what Jesus thinks. Oh, beloved, this evening, let us take a fresh look at Jesus' betrayed for us, by us and for us. There is love and willingness to suffer for us, draw us to repentance before him. I just encourage you that you, come, you should come before Jesus this evening Tell him, be honest with him. You are not, Jesus, you are not always my heart's desire. I want you to fill me with your spirit afresh. I do not want to betray you. I am tired of betraying you. I am tired of being too satisfied with my poor commitment to you in our relationship, of not investing in my work with you, of looking to idols to satisfy me. Oh, Lord, I am a mess. I need you to help me grow in loving and being faithful to you. I know you have saved me, but I don't want to be live like Judas. I don't want to live like Judas. Yes, I'm going to heaven, but I don't want to enter heaven like Judas. With a Judas attitude. Let's go to God before him like that. Let us allow this willingness of Jesus to be betrayed for us to draw us into this deeper devotion to Jesus our God, to pursue Jesus, to desire Jesus, to save Jesus. Because the question for all of us here is very simple. How can we, for who Jesus died, we 
for whom he bore those nails on the cross? How can we betray Jesus willingly? How can we carry on recklessly in our betrayal of him at every turn? We know deep down in our heart, this is not who we are. If we have truly surrendered to Jesus, we know this is not who we are. So let us come to him this evening and ask Jesus to help us to be loyal to him. Because, beloved, if we find that despite what we've heard this evening, there's still no impulse, still no desire. You know there are things you need to deal with right now, right here. And you're not, if you're not dealing with that, those things. If you're comfortable with betraying Christ, then that's a big problem, isn't it? That's a big, big problem. Because Judas heard the sermon that day in the upper room. Even to the very end, Jesus, even on Thursday before Good Friday, Jesus was pursuing Judas. His love will never let us go, isn't it? It's like it pursues us to the uttermost until we prove we don't want anything to do with it. And the question for us is that if there's no desire for us to change, then we must pay care of attention to how verse 21 ends. How does it end? Woe to that man, to that human being, by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. If you are not willing to turn away from betraying Jesus, to die to self, so that you would grow in faithfulness, then you are a Judas at heart. And the only outcome for you is woe, eternal torment. You know, I thought about this. I think I'm still not ready to preach that passage, that verse. Creation is a good thing. It's God who brings us into existence. And Jesus here gives us a counterfactual of something worse than spending, or something better actually. Uh, It would have been better. It would have been better not being born for this man. And Jesus is the creator who has brought this man into existence. He's sharpening, focusing our minds of, of just how fearful it is to fall into the hands of God. And as we come to the end of this and we think about all that Jesus has done for us, and my prayer for each one of us is that we would really let this truth sink in, that Jesus is God betrayed by us, and Jesus is God betrayed for us, and we would allow those truths to shape us, move us, to give us that deep assurance that we are people that are growing in surrendering to Jesus, resting on him as our God betrayed for us.